This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Tuesday, September 28th. Coming up, COVID-19 is still very much a threat in Missouri, and for pregnant people, the danger could be even greater. We're seeing an increase in that need to be ventilated, that need for respiratory support. We're doing preterm deliveries. We're doing unplanned emergency C-sections. We'll hear more about what's worrying OBGYNs across Missouri. Plus, Kansas schools are no longer on the hook for millions of dollars in gas bills after February's record cold snap. But first, suicide is now the second leading cause of death for Kansans between the ages of 15 and 24. And as is often the case, the story is different in rural parts of the state. David Condos is a reporter for the Kansas News Service based in Hayes in western Kansas. He's been reporting on how rural areas are handling higher suicide rates, and he's here to talk about it. Hi, David. I know me. So what do suicide rates look like in Kansas, and, and how are they different in rural areas versus in more populated areas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the reporting I did on this recently was prompted by a a new data analysis from the Kansas Health Institute that basically looked at the last two decades uh, of suicide statistics across the state. And so statewide, uh, suicide rates have gone up over that time, uh, about 45%. But in the most sparsely populated areas, uh, which they labeled as frontier and rural counties, uh, they went up even more. They went up 55% uh, and 60%. And so uh, especially over the past decade, uh, the rates in those counties, the the sparsely populated ones, have really outpaced the ones even in larger counties like Hayes that that many people would consider rural areas. um, They've really outpaced uh, the rest of the state. So why are suicide rates higher in those parts of the state? There's a a variety of complex uh, layers that contribute to that, Um, you know, for one, there's geographic space, so, so there's an extra barrier of the distance that somebody might have to travel to, to see a, a counselor in person. Um, then there's also cultural differences, and, and that's something that came up when I talked with Wyatt Beckman, uh, who's a KHI analyst who, who worked on this report. Rural communities aren't simply smaller versions of cities. Suicide prevention efforts that we design and implement and evaluate in an urban context can't always be copied into rural communities. And I think our findings show that there are unique challenges uh, and to better understand and implement suicide prevention in these communities, uh, we need to recognize the unique challenges and it's an opportunity to tailor approaches. So what are some of those challenges that are unique to rural areas? Yeah, so one that kept coming up as I was talking with folks for this story was this idea of stigma. So that's like, you know, the way that um, a community or or a culture kind of views this conversation around mental health, views, um, you know, how easy or difficult it it might be for, for somebody to speak up about it. And so, you know, specifically when looking at like farming communities uh, in these rural areas, for example, you know, that culture has long rewarded things like grit, you know, toughness, self-sufficiency, you know, because they had to uh, more or less over the years. And so, you know, but now uh, fast forward to today and that that can make it hard for folks to speak up and and reach out uh, in these types of conversations. And so that creates a situation that can keep folks from reaching out. And and I talked with Bradley Dirks, who's a behavioral health specialist with K-State Research and Extension uh, about that. 
we don't want to look weak, particularly as a male, particularly in a rural agriculture setting. And so to go into someone and say, look, I'm, I'm at the end of my rope, I need help, is really difficult. And so then that's compounded by the geographic isolation and even a lack of anonymity. So Dirks gave the example of, you know, if somebody decides they want to reach out and they, they go to see someone at their local mental health center, you know, another person in the community might drive by and recognize their pickup and think, oh, you know, I wonder what's wrong with so-and-so. And so that, that can also, you know, that lack of anonymity can also feed into what prevents people from taking that step. So one thing that came up in your reporting was the role of firearms in rural suicides. Can you talk a little bit about what you found? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so suicide by firearm uh, has gone up statewide uh, over the the two decades that the KHI report looked at. But the gap between the frontier counties, and so those are the counties that are the most sparsely populated, um, the difference between those counties and the rest of the state, including other rural counties, has widened, especially over the past 10 years. And so now in those frontier counties, uh, suicide by firearm rates are 50% higher than all other counties, including other rural counties. And and Wyatt Beckman, uh, the analyst with KHI said, you know, that type of, of detail in this data you know, might call for tailored uh, prevention efforts specifically for gun owners, for example. And so he pointed to a couple examples in other states where there are outreach programs, where where the state has partnered with gun shops or ranges to create uh, prevention approaches. Um, And then also another another option he mentioned was uh, a program in Colorado where they made temporary gun storage available for gun owners who might be experiencing some kind of uh, crisis themselves or in, in their home. So what else are people trying to do to address this issue of suicides? Yeah, and so something, you know, I want to make really clear in this conversation is that, you know, the resources may be more scarce in rural areas, but it doesn't mean that they aren't there. And so if somebody, you know, wants to reach out for help, there are there is help out there for them. And so, you know, there's a network of community mental health centers across the state, uh, including in western Kansas. There's High Plains Mental Health Center in Hayes that covers northwest corner of the state and they offer in-person services telehealth uh, some of their providers travel uh, uh, throughout the week to some of those more remote places so that's one option uh, there's uh, state programs actually the department of agriculture uh, has partnered with some other organizations uh, for a promotion called kansas ag stress uh, that, that targets some of the, some of the challenges that that farmers and ranchers are facing specifically um, and also, you know, K-State Research and Extension offers training. So if, if someone runs a business or has a church in one of these uh, rural areas, they can contact the Extension office to bring an agent out to, to lead a, a training for their, their group, their community. And, um, you know, Wyatt Beckman, the, the analyst with KHI, said, you know, hopefully this data and, and things like this analysis will help bring more attention and, and more customized help. Uh, to these areas. David Kondos is the Western Kansas reporter for the Kansas News Service. Thank you, David. Thank you, Nomeen. And now, some headlines. Olathe Public Schools and St. James Academy in Lenexa are investigating after a racist homecoming invitation went viral on social media over the weekend. KCUR's Carlos Moreno has more. In the photo, a white male student stands with a white female student and a handmade sign reading, If I was black, I would be picking cotton, but I'm white, so I'm picking you for hoko. 
The Shawnee Mission Post reports that the girl in the photo is a student at St. James Academy. The male has been identified as a student at Olathe South High School. Olathe Public Schools said in a statement they are conducting an investigation and interviewing the students and families involved to provide due process. St. James Academy said it's looking into the situation as well and urged parents to talk with their children about treating each other with dignity. Almost 200 Kansas school districts will save millions of dollars they owe for natural gas bills during February's record-setting winter storm. During the storm, the price of natural gas went from about $2 a unit to more than $600. That meant many districts had bills that month totaling what they would normally pay in an entire year. The Kansas Association of School Boards negotiates gas prices for the districts. Austin Harris of the association says the settlement will cut many of the bills in half ultimately saving more than $4 million. It's now down to a range that they can handle it based on reserve funding uh, and other sources of income at the district level. In the settlement, the districts agreed to pay the smaller amount in a single lump sum instead of payments spread over the coming years. We'll be right back. Don't forget to subscribe to The Early Bird, the daily news email from KCUR. Get news from Kansas City to Washington, D.C. delivered to your inbox every weekday at 6 a.m. Be in the know before you even get out of bed. The Early Bird. Subscribe at kcur.org newsletters. Real Humans by Gina Kaufman. Just the right length for your Kansas City commute with new episodes every Sunday on kcur.org and wherever you get your podcasts. You'll hear a complete story before you reach your destination. Looking for something or someone to, you know, break up the pace of the day, which is another reason why, like, I don't know, getting up and getting your next cup of coffee, at least you're getting up from your computer. Now I just, like, drink four cups of black coffee. It's just the water of the morning. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Throughout the summer, Missouri was an early hotspot for the Delta variant of the coronavirus, leading to more unvaccinated young people getting severely ill. Unfortunately, as more young people got sick, more pregnant people did too. Many OBGYNs across the state are now worried about severe COVID complications during pregnancy and birth. Rebecca Smith reports. Dr. Rebecca Hamill is an OBGYN at St. Luke's Women's Health North in Kansas City and says when it comes to COVID-19 and expectant mothers, it's simple. Moms are scared. I so very understand that. I mean, on a personal level, I am a pregnant obstetrician. I'm in my third trimester. Um, I understand the urge and desire and, and fundamental need to make sure you're making the best decision you can for your health and for that of your baby. Hamill adds that right now, those fears are justified as OBGYNs are seeing some new worrisome complications arise from COVID infections during pregnancy. Fortunately, most of my moms have uncomplicated infections, but unfortunately, we are absolutely seeing the rare exception to that at all gestational ages. In the first trimester, we are seeing an increase in miscarriage. And in the second and third trimesters, we're seeing an increase in that need to be ventilated, that need for respiratory support. We're doing preterm deliveries. We're doing unplanned emergency C-sections. And on top of all of this, OBGYNs are worried about early data showing a dramatic increase in the stillbirth rate, 
like in Springfield, Missouri, whose younger unvaccinated population was hard hit this summer by the Delta variant. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, stillbirth affects about one in 160 births. But in August, at Mercy Hospital in Springfield, 23 out of the 222 moms who gave birth had COVID, and six of those 23 had stillborn babies. That's a rate of one in 37 births, compared to that average rate of one in 160. Now, this data is limited, but maternal and fetal doctors in almost every major population center in Missouri say they're seeing something similar. We have pregnant patients that are testing positive for COVID essentially every day. That's Dr. Chandria Johnson. She's an OBGYN at Mercy in Springfield. She says they've been seeing more COVID-positive moms with abnormal placentas. They're showing evidence of vasculitis essentially inflammation and restriction of blood flow to the baby. And unfortunately, we don't really have a way to predict that. But there definitely is an association with COVID affecting the placental blood flow and circulation. Now, Dr. Gita Swamy is an OBGYN at Duke University, who's part of a national work group of doctors looking at COVID's impacts on pregnancy. Thankfully, we're not seeing those kind of things widespread. But with how aggressive the Delta variant is, I would not be surprised to find that we start seeing more signs of how that virus is impacting pregnancy. She adds that it's still too early to draw any broad conclusions or make any recommendations nationally, as more data is needed. Back in Kansas City, Dr. Rebecca Hamill says it's been heartbreaking to watch families experience these severe outcomes, especially because the vast majority of the mothers with severe complications have been unvaccinated. One extra maternal death, one extra stillbirth is too much. That's unacceptable. So I will advocate for vaccination. What's safer? Vaccination, hands down. I'm Rebecca Smith. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. This podcast was produced by Byron Love and edited by Gabe Rosenberg. You can listen to more of our work at kcur.org, where you can also read David's story on rural suicides and Rebecca's story on COVID and pregnancies. As always, you can hear Kansas City's NPR station live on the air at 89.3 FM. Tomorrow, we'll hear the results of a lawsuit trying to ban mask mandates in Missouri schools. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. Thank you.